Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Locked in Science, the Christmas festive edition. So great to have you with us for 30 minutes of Christmas science. Uh, My name is Claire and you might have noticed that Locked in Science over the last couple of months has just been Stu and Claire. But it is the Christmas edition, and what better way to celebrate a Christmas edition than to bring back to Locked in Science our very own Chris. Hello. Hello, Chris. Thank you for having me back. Yes, it's been, um, it's been quite a year, and I've been on, shall we say, extended parental leave. Um, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to have your mass back, Chris. <laughs> Stu, I've missed those jokes. Like a hole in the head. But I'm yeah. learning the dad jokes as well, so that's um, I'll write that one down. Uh, when, when, when does a joke become a dad joke? When? When you become a parent. <laughs> that this is, is, this is Christmas stuff. cracker level jokes. This is Christmas yeah. cracker level jokes, and I'm so <laughs> glad you're both here to um, lead us all through these, these excellent dad jokes. So, yes, it is Christmas time. I'm going to be taking you through um, my reimagined version of the 12 Days of Christmas, Australian native animal style. So stay tuned for that. Chris, what have you brought us this week? Uh, What have I brought us? Well, I haven't brought us the babies because they are, (laughs) our twin babies are currently both napping. Um, So I have a limited window to record this, obviously. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm a bit kind of all occupied by babies. So um, I'll probably just talk about them and the what little science there is that I've been able to pick up about them. But um, <laughs> due to my lack of kind of ability to organize something, I might talk a little bit about baby brain, how it affects mothers and possibly fathers as well. Excellent. I cannot wait to hear about that. And uh, Stu, what do you have for us this week? Christmas special. Well, it is Christmas related because I made it Christmas related, but it's <laughs> basically a story that came out in the last couple of months about how the fur of a whole bunch of Australian animals has a very strange property under UV light, which nobody ever knew before. Really? I saw that one. Yes, so, it's a cool story. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about that and why it is related to Christmas. You'll have to stay tuned to find out what the oh. link is. Great. I hope this won't uh, encourage a spate of people going out with UV lights and shining them on native animals. But I think it might have already done that. I think someone's been doing that all yeah since since this was uncovered. That's that's what's been going on. <laughs> Lockdown has produced some very interesting science. That's all I can say. Um, well, stay tuned for all your most Christmassy and baby brain stories. On with the show. Okay. 
Okay, so yes, as you all know, how may have heard, especially if you listen to the show for all year, I've had a bit of an adventure this year. The biggest part of that was the birth of twin babies. So my partner and I welcomed two little tiny babies into the world back in September. I'm, I'm glad that was the biggest part of the year and not your not your previous adventure. The misadventure with COVID. Yeah. Yeah, that feels like a long time ago. But uh, yeah, no, that was certainly a bit of a thing. And particularly it was interesting being in the hospital and having many of the people who'd kind of been supervising my partner's pregnancy while she was in admitted in the in the ICU, uh, having them say, oh, hey, you wouldn't remember me, but I was there when you were um, wow. sedated in hospital. And yeah, we had the, the celebrity twins, they were known as the babies as well, because they had been um, scanned and monitored by so many people. But yeah, look, now it's been an interesting time. And um, I've been looking for like the science of what happens with, with babies and this sort of stuff. And of course, there is a lot of science, but there's also a lot of non-science as well as mm-hmm. you can probably imagine um there are so many people with theories and ideas uh that it's hard to know who to believe often when you're in, kind of in the medical system you run up against i think a lot about um the well particularly in the hospital it's the medical side of things so as they when things go wrong they have research uh and science that backs up those stuff but it's just general parenting things is where you get kind of feels like a free-for-all in terms of advice and yeah that's a bit harder to to navigate your way through but you know you do your best i was just gonna say um did, did you instantly have your head filled with knowledge because i've come across people saying well because i'm a parent i know xyz about raising children but it seems like that in itself isn't a qualification to say anything it just means you've got a child yes that qualifies you to be a parent because that's what it means but does it actually give you any insight i don't know there's probably better ways to figure out what works than just one person's opinion I think everyone considers themselves an expert and everyone, of course, has a different idea of what the right thing to do is. Uh, mm. And so, yeah, you can't believe that. So it is actually good to, to look at the, the research, um, again, which is can be tricky to do. I have actually found um, some good books that I found helpful. Um, there is a couple of books by an economist of all people called oh. Emily Oster. Uh, yeah, so she, when she got pregnant, she wrote a book called Expecting Better. And she has a follow-up about parenting called Crib Sheet. And it's basically just looking at their research and data behind things and trying to sort through all the the different opinions that you get. Um, Because it's written by an economist, it perhaps takes a slightly different approach to things than, say, a scientific approach. Like, she's very much more data-driven and very much taking the data at face value. But on the plus side, I guess a lot of the, um, the things you come across have that kind of you know, economic bent as well. Like, you know, there is kind of an economic impact things on money-wise. And there's also things like personal preference, which is not so much a scientific thing, but is something that you need to consider when decision-making. So, yeah, I think the general takeaway is that there's a lot of variation between babies and you can't just believe what other people tell you. It's also hard. I mean, you know, this is something that we talk about a lot in, on Lost in Science, is that a lot of research is behind a paywall. But, you know, to start a blog... There's, there's no paywall there. So the more readily available information uh, might not be the most um, scientifically uh, accurate or evidence-based. It's yeah. just the things that are uh, most easily accessible to people. Yeah. I think I think generally, again, though, with, I like this with a lot of medical stuff, 
you, you can find reliable sources if you if you look for them. Um, mm. The government has a website called raisingchildren.net.au, which is pretty basic mainstream stuff. And yeah, it's it's evidence based and it's reliable. It's not highly opinionated though because it is kind of a mainstream thing so i think um the other thing that you get with blogs and those kind of stuff is you get strong opinions and although they can be very likely to be wrong they're also very believable because people have, have a lot of passion behind them whereas something that's a bit dry and saying oh this is this is the basics of it can be a bit more boring but is more reliable but look there is a lot to learn um i suppose you know and what are some of the things that I have found? Well, our babies were born prematurely. They were born six weeks early. And one of the things we learned from that is that essentially they weren't finished cooking. So there's some stuff that they need to watch out for. Like obviously they need to grow a bit more. They need, they're bad at regulating their temperature when they first come out. But it basically means that when you're looking at development milestones and that kind of stuff, the clock doesn't start until they hit their term mm. date. Right, they're on they're on minus time. I know, it's crazy. And it's like- That is crazy. It feels like it didn't count. All that time that you spent didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> is um is is six weeks particularly early for twins? I think about sixty percent of twins come earlier than their due date, and the due date for twins is actually is earlier than single babies. Um, single babies it's forty weeks. Twins they like to deliver at thirty eight weeks because that is kind of shows how better outcomes are going the full direction. Because again, the human body is not designed to carry two babies. But yeah, in our case, what happened was there was um, one of the babies had a problem with blood flow to their placenta, like from then to their placenta, and mm. that caused some growth restriction or was risk of causing growth restriction. He was a bit on the, the low side in terms of weight, as measured from the ultrasound. And so when we hit the 34 weeks mark, um, they kind of just kind of kept it going as long as they could. And they hit 34 weeks and there was sort of like a, and that was like another kind of, I suppose, milestone of saying, okay, mm. it's safe to deliver at this point. Let's get them out now. Um, it's weighing that benefits and and risks, I suppose. Yeah, but so that's interesting. So now we're kind of, the first six weeks didn't really count in that sense and now we're, we're going through the rest of it. So I think they're up to about nine weeks at the moment, um, corrected time. Um, so we're still in what some people call the fourth trimester, which is kind of like the next three months after the birth is when the babies right. are still kind of pretty useless. Um, the mother is still new, <laughs> kind of recovering from pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a lot of people consider that like a, a fourth trimester, essentially, of pregnancy. I guess it'll be, it'll be a, a, handy, uh, a handy thing if you ever forget their birthdays. You can say, oh, it's not actually your real birthday. <laughs> your real birthday's in six weeks' time. Uh, I'll get you a present then. <laughs> somehow, I don't think that's yeah, going I don't think to that's work. Somehow, doesn't fly. Okay, no, fair enough. Fly. <laughs> yeah, but as I said, I was also going to just briefly mention baby brain. It was something that I think both my partner and I have suffered from. There is um, some research that was done in Australia in Deakin University a couple of years ago, which showed that it is definitely a real thing for mothers that they can record cognitive decline over over the period of pregnancy. Uh, MRI scans have shown changes in grey matter. Uh, and there are similar changes to fathers when um, in, as showing in MRI scans for them uh, when a baby is born as well. Uh, how much of this is surprising, I don't really know because the brain constantly adapts to any change and is constantly rewiring itself when new things happen. So, you know, maybe it's not as surprising there is change to the brain, but um, also stuff like sleep deprivation can, of course, affect your ability to function. And I certainly feel like I'm not remembering things as well. Um, I can focus on tasks pretty good, but ask me to think about the big picture and I'm hopeless for that. So, <laughs> yeah, you're lucky to have me at all today, I think. 
We are very lucky. We appreciate it. Thank you. And um, and understand if you forget all about us in the next little while as well. Just um, <laughs> just uh, keep reminding me. It's like an yeah, like an yeah. request. <laughs> Well, it's Christmas time and it doesn't feel too much like it right now, but I'm here to tell you that one foolproof way of getting into the mood of Christmas is to play some Christmas carols. Uh, Stu, do you have any fav- favourite carols? Um, I, do, I do quite like the uh, the Twisted Sister Christmas album. That's a good one I always throw on <laughs> this time right. of year. Yeah. Is that yeah. your Christmas Eve special? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one, obviously, that gets rolled out a lot is the 12 Days of Christmas. I mean, it's a classic. But it's always irked me a little uh, that I couldn't really get behind or relate to the gifts that are being given, you know. Yeah, you know, what, it's, it's, what even it's, is a turtle dove? What even know. is a turtle dove and why are you get, getting it? A partridge. There's no partridges in Australia. Um, they don't reference any Australian native species. And, you know, to be honest, none of them really seems like that great a gifts to get behind or, you know, at least to celebrate at this time of year. So today I'm going to reimagine the 12 days of Christmas with a distinct Australian flair. So on the 12th day of Christmas... My true love gave to me not 12 drummers drumming. Instead, this is too good an opportunity to pay homage to the inimitable Australian palm cockatoo of Northern Australia, who is the only animal apart from humans that can beat a stick and, and, and create a rhythm and a beat and actually be a drummer. Very cool. So that, that's, that's a skill that they have. What is the benefit to the palm cockatoo of being able to drum? They use it to get mates. It's, it's ah. been shown that they drum, the boys drum, to um, drum up some business with the ladies, so to speak. <laughs> so, so quite the opposite of drummers in the human world. <laughs> I will not say that, but, you know, maybe. <laughs> All correspondents send it my way. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Okay, so then we've got 11 Pipers Piping. Now, this one didn't come as easy to me. Pipers Piping, what is that anyway? Is, is that a reference to like, a, like the Pied Piper, someone using a flute? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say probably more likely the little, the old-fashioned fife <laughs> to go with the drummers, the fife and drum. Yes, okay, um, but, all right. But you could also, it could also be people piping icing onto a cake. That would be much more Christmassy. <laughs> that would be more Christmassy, wouldn't yeah. it? Uh, this is just a serving suggestion, of course. But after some uh, research, I reckon we can replace this these um, fifers or, you know, whatever you want to call them, with an animal that has their own pipe, the flute-nosed bat or Murina floriam, which are tiny little native bats um, that are native to the misty mountainous rainforest up in the Dane Tree. Good one. Um, <laughs> can they play music through their nose? I'm going to say yes with a <laughs> but. <laughs> or, or is it? Or is it? Maybe they use it for somehow for their echolocation. Maybe, maybe they do. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which is sort of cooler than you know flute music, maybe. All correspondence for flautists out there, go to me. I know I'm probably offending a whole bunch of people. Leave, at the leave Kenny G alone. <laughs> so that brings us to ten lords are leaping now. Leaping lords, obviously in the animal kingdom, this makes me think of frogs. But what? Who is the lord of the frogs? 
I mean, and we all know who the Lord of the Dance is. Do we? <laughs> The Lord of the Dance. Only, only if you're a certain age. Michael <laughs> Flatley. Anyway, the, the Lord of the Frogs. In fact, the Eastern Banjo Frog, or as you might know them by, Stu, the Pobble Bonk, ah. with their excellent banjo-like plucking of a call, their scientific name is Limnodynasties, which means Lord of the Swamp. Amazing. Yes. So obviously, ten lords are leaping... Ten eastern banjo frogs or ten pobblebonks leaping. And um, one of my ne- favourite onomatopoeic names, the pobblebonk. Pobblebonk, pobblebonk. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> Next up is Nine Ladies Dancing. Um, now, the first thing that came to me here was, of course, one of our two Australian cranes, the majestic Brolga, who uh, mate in pairs and perform elaborate dances with one another. Don't know if you've ever seen a Brolga dance. They're pretty amazing. Now, that sounds like a good alternative to me, to dancing ladies. Then we've got Eight Maids and Milking. This was a little bit harder. And, you know, it's 2020, and so I think we should just do away with milking maids altogether. It's a little bit yeah. gendered. Probably needs a bit of a refresh. And so with the refresh, I thought we should celebrate the upgrades in technology of the dairy industry, which involves the move, the movement to robot dairies. But a lot of dairies nowadays have robotic dairies where the cows just come and go as they please and are milked by these laser-guided robotic milking cups. <laughs> so instead of eight maids are milking, we've got eight robots are milking. So I think maybe, you know, if, if you were going to go with the traditional 12 days, maybe we should change it to eight mates are milking. Ah, eight mates you know, are milking. inclusive. You're all it mates. is inclusive. Yes. Yeah, there we go. But totally. robot mates. Robot mates. Robot mates. Uh, yep. Eight robot mates. Well, you're robots, you mate, when you don't have to get up at 4 a.m. and do the milking shift. 100%. Uh, next one, seven swans are swimming. This is obvious considering Australia's home to the black swan. Um, we don't need to reimagine this one too much. We just um, imagine that the swans are black swans. And they're not just a swimming and hissing. <laughs> Twelve black swans are hissing. Hissing. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the next one is six geese are laying. This one was a bit of a tie for me between the excellent Cape Barren geese. See them a lot in Phillip Island, um, if you've been lucky enough to get down that way. Um, the giant grey geese and, of course, the much-loved black and white magpie geese that are most commonly seen around this time of year in the Northern Territory. They're migratory geese as well. So six geese are laying. Then we've got five golden rings. Nah, get out of here. They're a bit gaudy anyway. How about the blue rings of one of the world's most venomous marine animals and uh, a common resident of rock pools around the country, the blue ringed octopus? Um, Sure, you might not want five of these as a gift, but surely uh, worth a mention here just due to the fact that they are pretty, pretty terrifying and pretty beautiful. Five blue ringed octipodes. <laughs> it has been a big year for octopus in 2020 as well, so we yeah. could, we should probably pay homage to to octipodes. Octipodes. <laughs> octipodes. Down to now we're on four calling birds. Now I don't think we need four of them. We only need one, and it's the lyre bird because it can do any call, right? Yep. So let's just bring the lyre bird and we don't have to worry about the rest. Um, next, we've got three French hens. 
okay, we, we don't have any hens, any native hens in Australia, but we do have a sort of fowl that are around the size of a hen, and that is the mallee fowl. They're very endangered. Um, if you haven't heard of them, look them up. Um, they're one of three mound building birds in Australia. The males look after the eggs and regulate the temperature in the mound of the eggs, um, and they're currently listed as vulnerable. So it's probably good to get some um, get some awareness about those mallee fowl out there as well. Um, now to your favourite stew, the two turtle doves, and I'm you know I'm tempted to swap these guys out for the crested pigeon because who doesn't love little crested pigeon just you know feeding on seeds in your garden? But I'm going to swap them out for the peaceful dove. The peaceful Uh, dove. The peaceful dove, not only because, you know, Christmas is a time to reflect on how we can be a more peaceful society, but I only found out about peaceful doves this year. And they're just, they're they're tiny little doves. They're very lovely. They've got these beautiful blue rings around their eyes. And I do think they're an underappreciated dove. Which brings us finally to the partridge in the pear tree. Come on, get out of here, Partridge. And get out of here, Pear Tree. And get out of here, Pear Tree. <laughs> so we don't have any partridges, but we do have one incredible species that is the only surviving species in its whole family that lives here, and it's the family Pedionomidae. It is the plains wanderer, and it sits alone on its totally own branch of the evolutionary tree. So let's swap in the evolutionary tree for the Pear Tree, and put in the Plains Wanderer instead of the Partridge, and we've got our own, you know, very special, very unique 12 Days of Christmas. And you are going to sing it for us so we can put that up in the podcast, right, Claire? Yeah, maybe next year. There's a sort of a weird thing Australians do at Christmas is to put up Christmas light displays Mm. on buildings and in gardens full of flashing, twinkling, colourful lights to remind us of the Christmas season. And I say it's weird because in Australia at Christmas time it doesn't get dark until (laughs) well after most children's bedtime. So the wonder and the spectacle is somewhat lessened by overtired, hot and grumpy children (laughs) being kept up to look at these twinkly lights. Um, But I was reminded of this. Some news came out this year about something unique to Australia that has a lot to do with light. Um, But it was discovered in the Northern Hemisphere, where Christmas lights probably make a bit more sense than they do here. Now, Wisconsin is a state in the US, uh, one of those states where the capital, Madison, is overshadowed by the larger city of Milwaukee, mm. uh, or as Alice Cooper reminded us, Milwaukee, <laughs> uh, home of the Fonz. <laughs> um, now, some scientists at Northland College in Wisconsin were mucking around with an ultraviolet light and some preserved platypus specimens, as as you as do, as you do in lockdown in, when there's nothing else to do. And they noticed that the platypus glowed under UV rays 
And they wondered if it was some weird trick of the preserving method. So they checked some other specimens. There were some in Chicago and some in Ohio. Why do they have so many stuffed platypus in the US? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what's the deal there. Everyone, everyone gets a platypus. I don't know. <laughs> but they found the same results. And so they published their findings in the journal Mammalia, which is all about mammals. Of course. Um, and Australian scientists read this with some surprise and began looking at their own preserved specimens in a different light, so to speak. <laughs> and they found that lots of other species also glow under UV light. So they looked at wombats and bilbies and marsupial moles and a number of other Australian marsupials and discovered that many of them fluoresce under UV lights. But Whoa. not the, but not the carnivores. <gasps> So carnivores don't fluoresce under UV, but a lot of the other omnivores and vegetarian animals do. So the original researchers were sceptical at first, and they thought the animals might have become covered in rodent urine in storage, Mm. which tends to fluoresce under UV lights. But they figured out this is not the case. The fur of the animals themselves was actually fluorescing. Um, So for Australian researchers... Of animals, it could mean a new era of night spotting of animals as they wouldn't need to ruin their night vision by using spotlights. Or as Dr. Sarah Monks from the University of Tasmania told the ABC, you mean all these years we've been farting around with ordinary spotlights when we should have been using UV? (laughs) Which I just thought was, you know, that's a pretty good take (laughs) on that. Now, The reason for the unusual adaptation, which does not occur in other mammals very often, is something of a mystery. Um, But it might be to do with intraspecies recognition, so that the animals can see each other and recognise their shapes in the reflected UV light, and they would know that they can safely approach that other animal because they can see the shape. But I, of course, have another theory for completely seasonal reasons yeah some animals can see ultraviolet light naturally not humans but one species that has very good uv vision are reindeer (gasps) did you know this no i didn't so reindeer use their uv vision to spot lichen which is a big part of their diet. Yeah, right. And also for spotting the patches of predator urine in the snow. But Mm. when they're at work, there might be a different purpose for their UV vision. So when Santa delivers presents to people, he needs to know who is naughty and who is nice. So it makes sense for his sleigh to go to places where there are more native animals. Because the people who protect native fauna and provide safe habitat for them are on the nice list and so they get more presents oh i think this is a great working hypothesis look it's pretty simple yes it's just christmas science and that's all we have time for on another episode of locked in science locked in science is recorded on the lands of the kula nation Uh, and normally recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. Locked in Science is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
please get in touch with us. You can email us. We are lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are there. We are Lost in Science one Or you can find us on uh, the Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week, wherever you find us, when Stu, Claire and Chris get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.